Have you ever seen a parent-child showdown? <laughs> the little ones are kind of fun to watch. It's in the grocery store or something like that. Don't touch that. And you see that sort of, which again, because of our sin nature, the Bible teaches that the law provokes that, that just because we're told not to, we want to. And so there's that sort of tension that you just want to do it or the kid just wants to do it because they're told not to. But then those of you who have teenagers know that that parent-child showdown can be a little more complex because it might not be um, make your bed, but it might be, I don't want you doing this on your phone, or I don't want you hanging around that person, or I don't want you going to that whatever. And, and then there's that tension of saying, are they, going to, are they going to respond appropriately? Are they going to do what, what you asked? And we always hope for that. And and that's a journey, and many of you are there. And we think about different ways that we can encourage our children to obey us. When they're little, it's a, it's a little simpler. I'm big, you're little, and so do this. But as they get older, we realize that more and more we're thinking about how can we encourage them to, to be obedient to us. Well, in a, in a grander sense, much of that is, is illustrative of what it means to be a Christian. Because Jesus, when he calls us to himself, he gives us this free gift of eternal life come to me, come as you are. But he doesn't just say, come and stay as you are. Come and be forgiven and then follow me. And following him, he says, go and teach them to obey whatever I command you. And so it's very important to understand that being a follower of Christ is, and I say this a lot, not just getting Jesus as your Savior, but he's also your Lord and you're learning to follow him. And we have those parental moments in our own experience where we're, we're beginning to learn something that Jesus wants us to do or not do, and then there's this tension of whether we're going to respond. So we're in the midst of a parental moment in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, all the way to the end of chapter 10, where the Apostle Paul has, has told the Corinthians, stop eating an idol's temple, period. He didn't say, you know, I'd rather you didn't. This was an authoritative command. And one of the things that sort of defines true followers of Christ is that when you come to a commandment of God, are you going to persistently disobey it or are you going to turn and respond and obey him? So Jesus said, why would you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say? And so the Corinthians were in the thick of this trying to rationalize why they felt that they don't have to listen to Paul. And so they had determined he's not an apostle, so we don't have to listen to him. Number two, we can still eat in an idol's temple because we know there's no such thing as an idol. And besides, food doesn't matter to God. So Paul pushes back in chapter 9 and he says, you know, it's not about knowledge, it's about love. And if you're hurting another brother, you need to stop it. So last week we were in chapter 9 and we saw that Paul is still trying to persuade them to... To, to, to just surrender and say, okay, I won't do that. And, and it was a big deal, right? That's like being told, don't go to your favorite restaurant anymore. So as he wound his way through chapter 9, he goes, look, I'm an apostle. Let me prove that. And those of you who think I'm not an apostle because I wouldn't take money from you, the reason I wouldn't take money from you is I want to advance the gospel. And so we left off at the end of chapter 9 and verse 23 where he explained that he, he truly had a mission in life, and that is that others might hear the gospel. And we, we talked about that, how important it is to make the, the sharing of the gospel a central part of our lives. So at this point, Paul's going to move the, the, um, uh, 
His, his argument for it, he's going to say this. Number one, let me appeal to you from athletics. What a, what a great day for this to be. I mean, somebody this evening is going to hold up the Super Bowl trophy, right? The good old Vince Lombardi trophy, right? So, so Paul sometimes in trying to illustrate the Christian life would appeal to athletics. And so he's going to appeal to a metaphor there. And then he's going to say, you know what? Let's look back in history. Let's go back to, to some previous examples in the history of the people of God. And maybe that will persuade you to surrender to God. So I think I want you and I, all of us as, as God's family here, to read this passage in light of the idea of when God tells me to do something or not do something, am I going to respond? So let's start with verses 24 through 27 where Paul's going to use an athletic metaphor. He says, don't you know that those who run in a race all run? But only one receives the prize. Run in such a way that you may win. Now, one of the things I want you to think about is whenever Paul uses metaphors, okay, sometimes he'll use military metaphors, like he'll call Christians soldiers in service. And while that's cute and we teach the children, I'm in the Lord's army, boo, 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 boo. Like we have to stop and go, okay, what's the point here? So on more than one occasion, Paul uses athletic metaphors. But don't just go, okay, being a Christian is like being in a race. Like, okay, so in what way is being a Christian like being in a race? And what's the analogy here? So he says, first of all, let's think about the prize. The Christian life is not a competition. We're not competing against one another. But I'll tell you what we're competing for. We're competing for completion. And what I mean by that, it is not enough to start your Christian life. We must finish our Christian life. The Bible calls this perseverance. And I can only assure you that many people who get baptized and say they're a Christian fall away. The Bible calls that apostasy. And while you know that I strongly believe that God calls and keeps his own, that should never lead us to carelessness, but rather to vigilance and caution. So one of the things that, that the Bible teaches is if you call yourself a Christian, then really make obedience and surrender to God a priority in your life. There are many ways that the Bible says this. In Philippians, it says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. In 2 Corinthians 7, Paul goes, cleanse yourself from everything that defiles you and perfect holiness in the fear of God. I love how Peter says it. Peter says, be all the more diligent to obey God. He says, for in this way, now picture a, a race, the abundant entrance will be waiting for you into the kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So picture us as Christians now. We've accepted Christ, and we're all in this kind of marathon together. It's not a sprint. It's a marathon. We're headed for the kingdom of God. And now Paul sees some of the Corinthians going, I don't know whether. He told me I can't go, I can't, I can't sleep with prostitutes anymore at the temple, and I can't go to the the temple and eat at the... I don't know whether I want to do that. And he goes, all right, well, let me give you an analogy. Verse 25, everyone who competes in the games, they exercise self-control in all things. Now, this is an interesting historical background. They had Olympic games way back then. In, there was the Isthmian Games. So, so the idea of the Olympics didn't start with us. This is way back in Greek culture. And one of the things that we know from 
extra biblical literature is that if you signed up to compete, it was mandatory that you went into 10 months of training. No, no exceptions. In other words, you couldn't go, you know, I'm, remember John Crock from the Phillies? Big, chubby guy, smoked all the time, but, but he could hit a baseball, and everybody's like, all right, we'll just look the other way. Even though he's overweight, he smokes, he doesn't practice, he can hit a baseball. That didn't happen back then. If you were going to be in the Olympics, you had to train for 10 months. No exceptions, or, or the deal's off, even if you were the best. So in the same way Paul uses that analogy, he goes, look at them. Why do they do it? They do it to receive a perishable wreath. Now, interestingly, you've seen that laurel wreath that goes on top of their head. The Greek word for that is stephanos. It's sometimes translated a crown, but not a, not a gold crown. That's the Greek word diadem. So, so to get a stephanos in the Olympic Games was a big deal. Like if you had one, of the, I, I don't know how they distinguish it from just a, a poser one, but I suppose I could... I could get a fake gold medal and say, yeah, I won that in the Olympics, but people would, would know if you won a medal. And so to have a, uh, a, a Stephanos and to have competed and won, that was a big deal. You were popular, you know? You were doing endorsements. You know, and it starts early in our age. My little two-year-old grandson was at our house today, and he's got his Nike sneakers on, and he sees um, on, you've all seen this one of Michael Jordan, right? He's two years old, and he sees that on my sneaker. He goes, that's Michael right? So you would have been one of the Michaels back then. You would have been a Michael Jordan. And Paul goes, but for what? At the end of the day, for what? It's a perishable crown. In about 20 or 30 years, it's going to just be all withered up, and you'll you'd be like your granddad telling you, remember when I was a boy, son, I caught one bigger than that. Remember you telling him, I hit a home run, that's nothing. I hit two home runs. Paul goes, that's it? But he says, for Christians, we receive an imperishable reward, we're going to enter into the eternal kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. So therefore, Paul says, here's how I live my Christian life. I run in such a way as not without aim. In other words, he doesn't say, already Mark set, go, just start running in any direction. Like little kids, you ever watch little kids in T-ball? You're going the wrong way, right? But he says, I know exactly where I'm headed. I'm, I'm headed for the kingdom of God. And then he says, I don't box like beating the air. I'm not just, you know, throwing it around. Very purposeful, very intentional, right? And so he's saying, in the same way, that's how our Christian life should be. Look at verse 27. But I buffet my body, and I make it my slave. Lest possibly after I preach to others, I myself should be disqualified. Wow, what does that mean? Well, a couple things I want you to think about. The word buffet literally means to bruise, to hit under the eye. For those of you who have been misreading this, this is not telling you to buffet your body. Some of you do a great job of that, okay? This word buffet means to treat your body sometimes with severity, to bring it under control. Okay, now there's, there's a, a balance here. That's called asceticism if you think that simply by treating your body severely that somehow that will make you virtuous, because it doesn't. We've all read about in, in the history of, particularly in Catholicism, the monks that would go away and, and sleep on beds of nails and eat, you know, coarse bread and only drink water and, you know, kind of punish themselves. Martin Luther, before he was a Christian, used to beat himself. That was a common practice in the Middle Ages to sort of, sort of punish yourself. And we all understand that 
That doesn't bring favor from God. But at the same time, realize this, as, as, that as a Christian, we have this here body, right? This earth suit, this beautiful gift from God that's created in his image, and one day will be resurrected and perishable. Think of it this way. This here body of yours is going to be a good servant or it's going to be a bad master, right? So I, I share this a lot with, with, with my freshmen at Cairn, you know, because when that alarm goes off at 8 o'clock in the morning and the devil's going, you're getting sleepy, just stay in your little cot. You know, you can get the notes from somewhere else. I start teaching them, and, and not that you haven't been trying. You're like, trust me, pastor, we tried all the way through high school. You take a shot at it to teach them you know, what does it mean to, 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 to throw off the covers and get blanket victory, even though it's cold, and get up and do the things that you need to do? What does, it, what does it look like to say, me and my pals are having fun playing computer games, but I need to go to bed now, right? So the, the necessity of self-discipline, even in a totally godless perspective, it's still valuable, right? So when you're in the military, when they teach you to make your bed, it's not because making your bed is so virtuous, but there's great value in learning to discipline yourself. And so Paul says, as a Christian, I understand that I'm asking you to do something that's inconvenient, not go to that temple anymore. But he says, in the grand scheme of things, number one, I do that. What, did, what would he mean when he says, I buffet, I buffet my body? Well, remember what he said back in chapter 4? I'm poor, I'm hungry, I'm working with my own hands, manual labor. He's not sitting on a bed of feathers going, go out there and break rocks. And so ask yourself, in what way do you or I sometimes discipline ourselves? So I would encourage you to think about things like fasting and prayer. You're like, I do that a lot. Sometimes between breakfast and lunch, Pastor, I don't even eat a thing. That's not really fasting. So, so think about ways that you and I can, not because it in and of itself makes you virtuous, but teaching your body, no, you're, you're not in charge here. Belly, you don't rule me. Isn't this part of why we tell children, no, you're not starting with the dessert, right? You know, and the, the smart little kids are like, but you said Jesus could come at any time. I got to get this dessert in. You know, he might come back before dinner. So think about in your Christian life, how about spiritual disciplines? Oh, pastor, you know, I just haven't had time to spend time with the Lord. Is that what this sounds like? Oh, pastor, you know, I just, I'm not feeling it, right? Some of you get this. Some of you belong to the gym. I see almost all of you in January when you renew your, your sacred, you know, new vows. I'm going to go to the gym and then February less and March less and by June, you know, it's the same regular few. And some of you, you get that urge to exercise, but you've learned to just lie down and it'll go away and you can go back to your thing. So, so we get this from, from a human standpoint, but from a spiritual standpoint, what does it look like to discipline yourself in your walk with Christ? Paul goes, bodily discipline is, is a little valuable, but, but godliness is valuable not only in this life, but in the life to come. So this is a great challenge for us. In their context, Paul's saying, I'm asking you to, to deny yourself of something for the greater goal of growing and pleasing God and winning others to Christ. But then what does he mean by, I don't want to be disqualified? Now, in its context, that word means rejected or unapproved. 
And in the setting of the Olympic Games, at the end of the competitions, much like we have the medal ceremony, they would have a ceremony which a judge would sit on a, a stone platform or stand there called the bema seat, and he would distribute these, these Stephanus crowns to the winners. But he would also disqualify people. So for example, he says in 2 Timothy, you, if you're in a race, you have to compete according to the rules. So he might learn that in a boxing match, someone gouged someone intentionally in the eye. And so he might disqualify them. No, you don't get the prize because you didn't, you didn't compete according to the rules. So what would Paul mean here for a Christian to be disqualified? Well, Christians have different positions on them. Some, some believe that this means you could lose your salvation. In other words, you could go around telling other people about Jesus, but if you fall by the wayside, you're not going to enter heaven. I don't think that's what he means. I don't think a Christian can lose their salvation. Because the Bible says, he that began a good work in us will perform it till the day of Christ. He, he began my, my calling, my election. He brought me to himself, and all those whom God saves, he sanctifies, he disciplines. However, this should not lead us to carelessness. This should not lead us to think that I could live however I want because I know I'm saved because one of the cautions is this. Jesus said, why would you call me Lord and not do what I say? One day there will be people who will say, Lord, Lord, he'll say, I never knew you. All you did was disobey me and live wickedly. So there's sort of this tension that's saying, you can't lose your salvation, but don't be careless. And perhaps another thing that he's thinking about here is, you know how you've been told that every Christian Jesus is going to say, well done. Can I tell you, that's not true. Where in the Bible does it say that Jesus is going to tell every Christian, well done, right? He's only going to tell you well done if you've done well. But it doesn't mean if he doesn't tell you well done, you're not in. But the Bible says in 1 John, Abide in Christ and obey him and trust him so that when he comes, you'll have confidence. And little children, he's talking to believers, he goes, otherwise you might shrink away in shame. Example, what would happen if a Christian committed suicide? Oh, surely they would go straight down there, pastor. Really? Where's that in the Bible? If you're bought by the blood of Christ born into the, the, the family of God, indwelled by the Holy Spirit, you can't lose your salvation. But what do you think would be the first thing that happens when that person who ended their life, and that's very sad, very painful, the first thing that's going to happen, you think Jesus is going to say, well done. But he's not going to say, get out. Right? So you don't need to be afraid that if you do something dumb, you yell at your wife and say a curse word, and then you get in a car accident. You don't go to heaven. But at the same time, we're encouraged to discipline ourselves and, and obey Christ, that there might be an abundant, glad entrance. Remember how good it felt? It only happened once. But when your parents said, be sure you have this, this, and this done, and you're in bed and the TV's off by the time I get home. Remember how good it felt when you did that? Right? You're like, that was awesome. And remember how shameful it felt when you didn't do that? So Paul's appealing to them. And it's, and it's a good, you know, I think about this as a pastor. Big deal. If people come to Christ and God changes people, at the end of my life, I want to finish. I'm not writing books on how I did it. I want you to pray for me to finish. 
and every pastor because we see them falling left and right. And we need to watch and pray. I love how Paul, at the end of his life, he said, now I'm finished my course. I remember Deion Sanders wrote a book when he first came to Christ called How Sex and Women Almost and Drugs Almost Ruined My Life. And I'm thinking, you're writing that when you're 30s? Write that when you're 98 and you're pretty sure you've made it. And so a great encouragement to say, Lord, am I, am I just kind of just losing my way and just doing whatever I want? Or am I, am I seeing my Christian life as a race? And, and sometimes I got to say no to this or that because I want to please you. So Paul's like, all right, let me give you another example. He says, let's, let's take a history lesson. Now, one of the things all of us as parents, have you ever wrestled with this? How much do I share with my kids about mistakes I made? And some parents have two extreme views. One is, don't let them know anything. Make them think you were as pure as the driven snow. Because if you tell them what you did, then they're going to do it, right? And so whenever kids ask, you know, that type of parenting style, when kids ask, did you ever do that or struggle with it? You know, we're not talking about me right now, right? Which I think kids can see through that, right? But then there's the other experience. Hey, we are, yeah, when I was your age, I was smoking weed, doing all that. Yeah, you know, you, you'll get to, you know, sow your wild oats. I'm like, no, don't do that, right? But what do I do? When we're trying to tell people, hey, I want to save you from some pain. Yes, I did that. And yes, God forgave me. But if you think that I escaped unscathed, if you think that I don't have spiritual scars, if you think that I didn't reap what I sowed, then you're missing the point. So what Paul's going to do is going to say, God gave us a history book. Right? Remember how they say if you don't learn from history, you're bound to repeat it? He says, let's go back to the Old Testament story of the people of God and see that they had a very similar temptation that you have. You are tempted to be immoral and to worship idols, and I'm telling you to stop it. You're not the first people to, to have this struggle. Let's go back to the Old Testament. Now, those of you who know the story of the people of God in the Old Testament, remember when God called Abraham and created the, the Jewish race. He said, you're going to be 400 years in Egypt, and they multiplied to a million people, and then God raised up little baby Moses, and Moses, as he grew up, was called by God to lead them out of Egypt back to the promised land. And all of that in the, in, in the providence of God was intended to be an example to us of the Christian experience. And there are so many cool parallels as you start reading the Old Testament. It's not like, well, how about that? That just, no, this was all planned by God. So, so on the night of the Passover, when they sacrifice a lamb and they put blood over the doorpost and on the lintel, a beautiful picture of the cross, Christ our Passover lamb. And then that journey across the Red Sea and under the cloud and, and eating manna and drinking from the rock and headed for the promised land. All of that is a pattern and a picture of what it will look like in the end for us as Christians. And so Paul says, let's look back at them. And, and, and as you're wrestling with idols and immorality, let's see what happened to them. Verse 1. For I don't want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers, this would be the, the saints in the Old Testament, they were all under the cloud. Now the cloud here would be that special pillar that protected them from that blazing sun. And they all passed through the sea. Remember the, the great event where God parted the Red Sea. And then Paul draws a parallel here. He, he, he uses the metaphor of how 
These things are pictures of what we call our sacraments or our ordinances. He goes, they were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Now, of course, he doesn't mean halfway across the Red Sea they go, now I baptize you in the name of Moses and Father, Son, Moses. No, he's simply saying in the same way that they went through the Red Sea, if you're a Christian, you've gone through the waters of baptism. Or have you, right? 1045, or have you? And if you haven't, right? So, so he says, you've been baptized. They were baptized. They all ate the same spiritual food, manna. We eat the same spiritual food, the Lord's Supper. Now, by the way, something that struck me is, how did they like that manna after a while? Right? I want what I, think about this, I want to eat what I want to eat. Hmm. Stop eating in an idol's temple. I want to eat what I want to eat. Okay? They all drank the same spiritual drink. Now, there's, there, there was a, and there, in, in, in history, there's this Jewish tradition that as they wandered for 40 years in the wilderness, that a rock was following them around. In fact, some of it comes from the story of Miriam, and they, they called it Miriam's well. And there's, in one of the songs of, of celebration of Miriam, it says, spring up, O well. And so, so the Jews actually had this tradition that when they wandered in the wilderness, that there was a well that followed them. And it was called Miriam's well. And we can't say that for sure, but we do know this, that on more than one occasion, God gave them water out of a rock, right? And so Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says, you want to learn something new about geology? He says they drank from that rock which followed them, and the rock was Messiah. It was Jesus. Christ himself. What an interesting analogy. Do we not drink? Have you drunk from the well? Ha have you never heard the words of Jesus? If any man's thirsty, can come to me and drink. That satisfaction that, that our souls long for, that only Christ can offer you. And those of you who are trying to find it in drugs and a new job and, you know, your girlfriend or whatever, you're not going to find it. You're going to find satisfaction in Christ. And that's why I love some of those songs about, about being dry and, Lord, I want to drink from springs of living water. And what a blessing to think that we as Christians have that privilege to feast on Jesus, to meet with him, and to find him a fountain of life. Why would you turn away from that? Jeremiah said, my people have committed a great evil. They have forsaken me a fountain of living water, and they drink from muddy pools. Like, how idiotic. We're not dogs when I'm thirsty. I don't go out and drink from a puddle. But as a Christian, to turn away from God and live horizontally and just say, I'm doing it my way because I want to, is like drinking from a mud puddle. And so Paul says, listen, our fathers had these great privileges, and so do we. Nevertheless, look at verse 5. With most of them, God was not well pleased, for they were laid low in the wilderness. That Greek word can mean scattered, corpses throughout the desert. You know how many people there were? A million people. A million people who had seen the, the pillar, who had witnessed the miracle of manna, who had drank from a rock, 
who had witnessed the Passover, and yet with most of them, God scattered them throughout the wilderness. Were they believers? Was it only Joshua, Caleb, and a couple people out of a million that that even entered the kingdom of God? Even Moses couldn't enter the promised land because of his disobedience. Is that the point? I don't think so. I, I would suggest that probably many of them were believers. And they got that one shot at life. And they stood stubborn and obstinate. And they spent their entire relationship with God fighting against him until God said, all right, is that how you and I want to end our Christian walk? We just want to be laid low. Well, at least I'm in heaven. At least I made it. And so Paul says, let's learn from them. Verse 6, these things happened as examples for us that we should not crave evil things as they craved. Wonder what the Corinthians are thinking. So you're saying me craving to go into an idol's temple is craving evil things? He goes, yeah. Do you ever crave things that you know that you're not supposed to crave? I do. You know what the Bible calls that? The lusts of the flesh. We still have remaining sin. And, and, and we know what it is to covet our neighbor's spouse, house, whatever. We know what it's like to want what we can't have. And that's part of what it means to be a Christian, to learn through the Holy Spirit to walk in the Spirit so that I can put to death those cravings instead of saying, I want what I want, and too bad. I want a new wife, or I don't want to stop getting drunk, or I don't want to stop. I just want to stay angry. I don't want to forgive them. Yeah, we all get that. So what can we learn from them? Paul goes, well, here's what we need to learn. Don't be idolaters as some of them were. Now, here's the thing. For us, we're like, well, pastor, I got that. I don't have a single statue in my neighbors have a statue of Mary in their yard. Yeah, yeah, stop it. Just because we don't have a statue that we bow down to, believe me when I tell you we struggle with idols. Because an idol is anything in our lives that takes the place of God that preoccupies our soul and becomes our prize in life and the reason that we're living. And I would suggest that football isn't too far from a statue here. Like, did he have to go there on Super Bowl Sunday? I mean, do you know how much time and money and energy I spend in getting ready for our Super Bowl party? Do you know how long I've been obsessed with thinking about this? Yeah, um, maybe, okay. And do you know how depressed I'll be for the next three weeks if my team doesn't? It's like, well, so all of us are like, yeah, I get it. So let's not allow idols to bring us down. So Paul says, you know how it was written that people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play? While Moses was up on the mountain, the people are down below. And and most commentaries suggest that this is not they stood up to play um, bingo or Yahtzee or... What's, what's the game? Twister. But this is, a, this is an allusion to sexual wildness, like we think about in our culture, which is the party school. You know, and that's what the world is saying. Hey, you know, you're missing out. Paul says, nor let us act immorally as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in one day. Can I urge you, if you're a Christian, if you're having an affair, if you're addicted to porn, if you're not married and you're sleeping with your boyfriend or girlfriend and you're a Christian, you are being immoral 
and that that's sin and you're displeasing God. And we need to talk about those things and not pretend it doesn't happen. And, and sometimes young people go, well, we didn't actually go all the way as though putting your paws all over one another is okay. That's, that's immorality. The Bible says God wants us to possess our bodies in, in purity, not lustful passion. And so I urge you, pray for me. I want to I be pure. I want to be kept from these things. Sometimes my wife will say, why do you mention that stuff? Because I know there are many people that struggle with it. And if you are disobeying God sexually immoral and you're a Christian, that's not going to end well. And I urge you to, to learn from this. And sometimes the, the, the starting point is just to humble yourself and talk to somebody. We're not going to throw you to the curb and go, what's the matter with you, you dirty animal? So, Paul says, nor let us try the Lord as some of them did and were destroyed by the serpents. Pastor John should be up here now. His favorite passage, Numbers 21, remember? And, and, and the serpent in the wilderness. What does it mean to try the Lord? Remember the, the parent showdown? I just call this a Jesus showdown. Later on in this chapter, Paul's going to say, you want to keep doing this? You want to test the Lord? Are you stronger than him? Who's going to win that? So Paul goes, don't, don't try the Lord by, by saying, I know you don't want me to do it, but I'm going to keep doing it. And he says, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. And, and you know what was interesting? What were they grumbling about? They weren't just grumbling because they didn't like the food. You know what they were grumbling about? They didn't like their leader, Moses. We don't have to listen to you. The Bible actually says they grumbled against Moses. How would that apply to them? They're grumbling against Paul. Who do you think you are, Paul, telling us what to do? And people today will sometimes grumble against preachers. How dare he tell me that? Who does he think? If I'm telling you what the Bible says, don't shoot me. Take it up with the living God. And we all have a tendency to complain and grumble. And again, I want to say I'm posturing myself not here like, here's holy Tom telling sinful peons. We're in this thing together. But Paul wraps it up. He says, now here's the deal. These things happen as an example. And God in his mercy, through the spirit of God, raised up people like Moses to record these things so that I could get out my blessed Bible and dust the cobwebs off and go, there's a good reason to read the Old Testament. They were written for our instruction. In fact, sometimes people go, oh, I wish I just lived with Jesus and saw the miracles, then I would have strong faith. Not me. Give me this precious book. I can't even remember what I had for breakfast, right? But I got this book that I could continually go back to and say, now what's it say again? And how did that happen again? And what could I learn from it? Cherish this thing. This is a precious, precious gift from God. And, and the entire Bible has encouragement and instruction and example for us. And that's why we encourage you to be feeding on the Word of God. It's not, did you have your devotions, chapter a day to keep the devil away? But walking with God and letting him speak to us through his Word and say, hey, Tom, learn from this. And notice why we need to learn from this. Paul says, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. We're in the last lap. Everybody who preceded us is now cheering for us. We're, we're in the last days, and we have the privilege, but also the responsibility of going, wow, to whom much is given, much is required. And so some commentaries feel that 
these Corinthians had become complacent because they felt as though the ordinances gave them a pass, meaning, hey, as long as I do the Lord's Supper, as long as I do baptism, I can do whatever I want. And so Paul says, therefore let him who thinks he stand take heed lest he fall. Hmm. Could you imagine having an affair? Could you imagine committing some blatant sin? Can you imagine doing something horrible? If you can't, <laughs> perhaps that's the point of this passage. If any of us thinks, Pastor, let them have it. They need it. Boy, I wish my cousin Billy was here. I hope, hope Uncle Larry's watching online. Paul's going, no, no, think about yourself, Tom. Do you think you're immune to these things? And so what a wonderful way to go, wow, take heed. And then Paul closes with this, I shouldn't say close, but he, he moves the argument one step forward. He goes, I know this is tough. I know this is a test. I know that some of you are in a difficult marriage and you're like, I just want to trade in for a new spouse. Somebody will make me happy. Or I just want to, whatever. You know, I don't want to forgive. Paul goes, I get it. And God does ask us at times to go through hard times. He does ask us at times to sacrifice. He does ask us at times to humble ourselves and deny ourselves. But in the grand scheme of things, he never asks us to do anything that he won't enable us to do. So I hope this final verse will be encouragement. No temptation has overtaken you. He, so, so he's saying to these Corinthians, I know you don't want to stop going to the idol's temple, and I know you don't want to obey me in the things that I'm telling you, but listen, you're not alone in this thing, but such as is common to man. Some of you have severe depression and anxiety. Can I encourage you with one of many truths? You're not alone. That doesn't make it go away, but you're not alone. Other Christians experience these things. And knowing that you're not alone and there are others who can help you should encourage you. You say, well, Pastor, if you knew I was abused as a child, you're not alone. Well, I really struggle with looking at stuff on the internet. You're not alone. You're not the first one. I'm not the first one. And God is faithful. He will never allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able. How often do we believe the devil's lie? I can't take it. And God's going, if I didn't think you could take it, it wouldn't be happening. So I often said it like this. I have a this farometer. I can't go any farther than that. And then I say to God, what am I doing over here? And he goes, because you miscalculated your this farometer. Because if you're over here, that means I know that you will be able to endure it because I'm going to enable you. So with the temptation, God will provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. So maybe you're hanging on by a thread. You're like, I just can't take it anymore. And God's like, I got you. I'm faithful. I'll give you strength. Let me hold on to you. But let's let this parental showdown come to a stop here. Just surrender to me. Trust me. Let my Holy Spirit change you. And for them, it means stop going to the idol's temple. That's your escape. What is it for us? What's God asking you to stop? or start, or to continue. Amen? Amen? Let them have it, Pastor. No, let me have it too. Pray for us, right? This is a great passage. I'm encouraged by this. I hope you're encouraged, not feeling bad, like, okay, thank you, God. Jarring me awake. Let's get going. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you love us so much. You saved us completely by grace. Please, I pray that our flock will not be laid low. 
that we will not be scattered. I don't want to be scattered on the beaches of time having a wasted life. So encourage us today through the Holy Spirit to be all that we can for Christ. And whatever changes or sacrifices you're asking us to do, please give us the enablement to do that. Forgive us for our pride when we think we stand. In Jesus' name.